We both like to win. We both detested getting beat. The love affairs have had plenty because we've been with, with some tremendous football clubs. There was nothing else at all in the whole world but football. Welcome to Merseyside Legends, the tales and tapes with John Keith. He was larger than life and greater than great. His record will stand forevermore. Just take me back to those good old days, Dixie, to glorious Goodison Park. Those proud blue shirts took the road down to Wembley, and Dixie Dean hit as regards anything crippling and all that sort of thing, that wasn't my game. The game was called football, and it was football, not Fort Man. Uh, the only thing I used to do was turn around to the mum. I had 15 operations, by the way, throughout the footballing career. And I turned around to the chap, the one that broke a bone, or gave me a, a broken rib or a broken shoulder blade or whatever it was. I should just turn around and say to him while I was laying there, has this done you any good? I've never even had my name taken all the way right through. Or I was never even spoken to. I was only spoken to once, I think, and that was by old Lollapa, uh, a referee from uh, Shrewsbury Way somewhere. And all his love said to me was, would you like a mint drop? I said, yeah, I would very much. Thank you very much. Because yeah. they used to suck those mint drops in those days. Dixie there showing what a great professional he was because, as he said, he had 15 operations from football injuries, a lot of them the result of foul challenges by opponents. Let's not dress it up. That's what they were. But Dixie did never retaliate. I mean, for a man in his position, the centre forward, everyone wanted to stop. Never having been booked is just quite remarkable. And he, he's obviously proud of it because he then talks about the mint drop offered to him by the referee. But I think that clip just about sums up that Dixie Dean was a great player, not because of the goals he put in the net, but for the fact that he just withstood everything the opposition could throw at him and kick at him. Oh, of course, the club and a couple of directors, they went up with me to Hamden. And uh, on the Friday night, we played, we stayed in Centino Hotel, Glasgow. And uh, there was a gentleman that sent his valley down to us and asked, asked us if we would go up to the rooms, so this man's suite of rooms. And there was a fellow named Tom, old Tom Payton from Bradford, a cotton millionaire. And he asked us if uh, he would come up, he'd like to have a word with us. Old Jack Hill was the skipper from Burnley, the centre half. So we went up, up to his room, and he turned around to us and said, now look, he said, I've been travelling with this English team for the last 20 years. He said, I've never seen them win. I damned them. So he said, now what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to give you £10 a man if you win, and I'm going to give you £10 a goal, whoever scores. So we go downstairs, and old Jack Hill's there, and said, oh, what about this, what about that? And I said, he's crackers. He said, what? He's crackers, he said, blimey. 
Ten pound of gold. Being Molly Nerd tomorrow night. At any rate, uh, we won 2 1. And that was the first time that Scotland had been beaten at Amden for 23 years. And uh, then, when we get back to the hotel, had a bit of something to eat, we were all sitting in the lounge waiting for this here valley to come. Anyway, he came and asked us up to the room. And there, along the, uh, the mantelpiece of uh, his room there, over the fireplace, you could see the little leaps. And I could see my little leap on the end. There was 30 quid in it. The 40 pound went into the shirt out. I think we all got a couple of pounds each out of it. So uh, we were well satisfied. That clip we've just heard from Dixie there about his two goals at Hampden Park, I think sums up what football was like then and what it's like now in stark contrast. That £30 that Dixie picked up, the £10 for the win and the two tens for his two goals, that was um, about three times his weekly wage at Everton. And when you think that players are now playing in the Saudi league for £700,000 a week. Just remember that, £700,000 a week. And Dixie was reminiscing with great joy and pride how he got 30 quid off a cotton millionaire for performing heroics at Hampden Park and quietening a crowd that was never quiet usually. And some observers said that Dixie made Hampden Park like a, a funeral parlour. It was so quiet because Dixie's amazing scoring technique and prowess had rendered those passionate fans so silent. So I think that clip is gold dust. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Back into the first team and then things started. The stars started to shine a little bit brighter. Started the season 1927-28. And uh, from the very first kickoff there, I knew, I don't know what it was, but I, I simply knew that I was going to do something. Off to Burnley, Turf Moor. Big Jack Hill, the English captain, English centre-half fellow. He was centre-half against me. And I get four before half-time. And they, I can say now that there wasn't one headed in. They were all hitting. And I went off then. I pulled a muscle in the leg, and off I went. Old Larry Cook said, no, no more. Don't go back on there. So that was it. Anyway, he came home with me and stayed with me, as a matter of fact. He slept uh, in our house at Thornton and uh, was bandaging and putting on these plasters. On this. And he stuck with me right to the very end. To me, it was just uh, a case of another day, uh, another match, another day. Uh, I went along to the ground just as usual, the old tram. Uh, I used to get it in Water, in Water Street, 
44 and just walk along the Goodison Road into the ground and uh, getting stripped up and so on. Now, the thing was, I wanted three goals in the Arsenal who were just at about those few years, they were about the greatest team like in the land. There was no getting away from that. That didn't have to make any difference to me. When you, when you think of the team that they, they had there, there were some really swell. As a matter of fact, uh, they had nine internationals one time in one team. And uh, they were the same, the same players as played that day. I went down the middle and uh, got this one, hit it, and it flew in. And that was just outside the penalty area. I think that was after about 10 or 12 minutes. I know it was quite early on. And then soon after that, I go sailing through and get into the penalty area, and I was just going to tap it alongside the goalkeeper. And up the my body went and flat on my face. Penalty. I took the penalty myself and believe me, it went between his legs. Whoever it is or whoever it was, was just looking at me, that's right, that's two you've got. But then again, time was going on in that second half. Well, I was getting the ball from all angles and just simply one going over, one going on the side, and two or three tip round the post. But at any rate, uh, when we won this corner that Alec got, he took this and it came absolutely perfect. I ran in from, from outside the penalty area and it flew in the net. And that was it. Well, they had to have the game finished, of course, so perhaps I thought they might see another goal. And that was the time that I went to the referee and said, look, I'll be sliding up uh, before the finish, before you blow that whistle. I went up that pitch and I never went back on until the following season. The goalkeeper himself was the first to come and shake hands with me and congratulate me. I had run in like into the net. That was Dixie talking about that amazing day and it will get more amazing as the years go on when he scored a hat-trick to complete 60 league goals in one season of English football. Quite unbelievable. But what gets me about Dixie and always has done, having been privileged to have known him, is the way he was so humble about things. I mean, he said that to him, it was just another day, another game. Well, it wasn't, it was far from that. He needed to score a hat-trick to set a record that will last forever. And he was up against a very good team in Arsenal as well. But it was the way he, he talks about it, so matter of fact, He's, he's performing magic and talking about it as a matter of fact, which is quite remarkable. His mother, Sarah, was watching from the press box. They gave his mother a seat in the Goodison press box, which, by the way, hasn't changed a great deal uh, to this day. 
they gave her a seat and in the second half, apparently, she put her hands together and said, please give him one more chance. And obviously she was very pent up and nervous about it, seemingly more than Dixie. But to hear this man talk about how he sort of completed the job and then slid off, he said, well, that was it. That was it, he'd done his job, so he slid off. When the game was over, by the way, Charlie Buchan was in the Arsenal team. He was most cut up about this because um, he, um, he, he wasn't very... He wasn't very congratulatory of Dixie and apparently Dixie was quite hurt by this because most of the Arsenal players made sure they shook his hand. But I think uh, our Charlie was not one of them, so I believe. But there we are, that was the great Dixie Dean on the incredible feat of scoring 60 league goals in a season. And my mind can never get away from the fact that he arrived for the game, he crossed uh, the river from his home in the Wirral on the ferry, then got a tram car, or what Dixie called a jam jar, uh, to Goodison, and then got off and walked through the seething crowds who were all up for this big event, will Dixie do it? Walk through those crowds into the player's entrance, what the journey must have been like for him, must have been slapped on the back thousands of times in that short walk. So in a sense, what he did was take a tram ride to immortality. I'd say that there was about 50-50. I would say that uh, half of them were with the, the two feet and half of them the, the old nut. But uh, they had him trick. That, to me, that was, uh, that was a, like a gift, absolute gift. I could time it to, oh, practically a second. And of course, you have to have keen eyes watching these balls sailing all around. You have to be able to jump at the right time. Some fascinating stuff there from Dixie about his scoring ability, not, as he points out, always with his head. He says it was about 50-50 goals scored with his head and his feet. But he'll always be remembered for his heading, which was quite remarkable. And to hear him talk there about how careful you have to be with the timing of it, I'm not surprised because those balls he played within his era, when they got slightly wet, they became like rocks. So what they must have been like to meet when they've been played in at speed from across, I just, I just can't imagine. It must have been, there must have been some pain. There must have been. I mean, however careful you are to meet it properly and avoid the laces, of course, which was another factor. If they hit you with the laces head on, they could cut you. But there was Dixie saying that you had to be careful. Well, <laughs> there's a wonderful story to show you how seriously they took heading because when Tommy Lawton, another great centre-forward for England, arrived from Burnley to sign for Everton and eventually became Dixie's successor. He and Dixie used to play head tennis with a medicine ball, with a medicine ball. 
and this was to develop their neck muscles. Well, I bet there's some bulls walking around fields today with neck muscles smaller than what Dixie and Tommy Lawton would boast when they're heading a medicine ball because it would make your neck bulge, I'm sure. But <laughs> what good that would do to the brain, I just, I just don't know. I'm sure that is uh, certainly not allowed today when even they're talking about school children being prevented from heading a ball, but there's no doubt that when it was legal and allowed, heading a ball, there was no greater perfectionist at the art than Dixie Dean. We win the second division. As a matter of fact, I think we were 10 points ahead at Christmas time. We come up, we win the first division, and then the English Cup the year afterwards. Now they were three, three great years. We had a really good chance of winning it. Uh, we went off special training to Buxton. And uh, we used to train in all the snow and sludge and everything that was up there. But by Jove, we had a, a fit team. And uh, Good enough. The lads used to have a, a drink now and again. They knocked it off, and the, the lads smoking used to knock it off. One of the sharpest lads that we had then in that forward line was Jimmy Steen, the outside left. There was no getting away. He was a good player, this lad. And uh, we'd only been playing about 18 or 19 minutes, I think it was. And Jimmy goes down there, goes down the bottom, and puts one behind uh, behind the goalkeeper, in the back of the goalkeeper. He shot this ball, it went between the post and the goalkeeper. It was going so fast. And uh, that was one up. And there's one nothing half time. In the uh, second half, told the lads now, whatever you do, get that ball over into that goal area. Don't be trying to beat another man. Get that ball over. And then it all clipped Britain. He set one over there and it was a beautiful thing. Over he came and from about eight yards out, that finished up in the back of the net with Langford, the goalkeeper, lying on top of it. He'd made an effort, a last effort to try and grab at it, but it was in the, right at the back of the net. And then uh, the last goal was a corner from Albert Geldard. He sends a beautiful ball over. Little Dunny runs in to edit, and he edited something similar to the one I'd got myself. And in that went, and that was three nothing. Now they've got a they've got a greyhound track down there, down Wembley. And little Donnie was running around the greyhound track, and uh, took us all our time to catch him. Uh, as I said, we we had a team that stuck by old Tom McIntosh's uh, stuck to old Tom, my buddy Daffus, and. He thanked us all, oh, he had tears in his eyes and God knows what. He got his raise all right, oh yes. He took us for a night out and you could throw what you liked then. 
Oh, I went up very well. Well, Manchester City had, uh, as I said, about seven internationals. But, uh, I don't know, they, uh, we seemed just to take them for a ride. That um, win, <clears throat> that FA Cup win, climaxed a wonderful three seasons, as Dixie said. First of all, promotion back to the top flight, then won the league title, and then they play Manchester City at Wembley in the FA Cup. It really was a great time for Everton because they hadn't won the FA Cup since 1906. And when they brought this 1933 trophy back to Merseyside, they had the same carriage and four with horses to take them along Scotland Road as they had in 1906. And there is a, <laughs> there is a, a jocular story so people say it's true when there's a mother with a child watching the 1933 winners go along the road with Dixie holding aloft the FA Cup and this child starts to cry it's only a baby and the mother says if you don't be quiet James I won't bring you next year <laughs> and of course there wasn't a next year in fact the next time Everton won the FA Cup was 1966 so it was a long time to wait. It had been a long time to wait since 06, and it was a long time to wait till they won it again. But that was clearly one of the highlights of Dixie's career, and he was very, very proud of it. And there's a wonderful picture of um, Dixie and Everton coming in on the train to Lime Street, and he's leaning out of one of the windows holding the FA Cup, so all the station staff and the thousands of people on the station will see the trophy wonderful time and um, yet another great highlight in a great man's career we're going down lord street it like it was coming one way i was going the other i just threw my head at him to nod him to nod to him and he died through dimmers the window he died through the jewelers rather through the window he must have thought he uh, how he was, he was seeing things. All the Elisha. We used to always go down to a place in Victoria Street called the Lisbon. And uh, Elisha would probably get there first, or I might get there first. It all depends. Just on the doings, getting the rest in. And we used to go down and uh, he'd have his old Guinness and I'd have a pint of better. And uh, we'd hardly mention the game. It just shows you, doesn't it, in that clip from Dixie there, that um, although they were deadly rivals on the pitch, as the teams were, and, and the fans, of course, to this day have this amazing rivalry, these two, Elisha Scott and the great Dixie Dean, uh, were friends, and um, they would meet, as he said, in the Lisbon bar, that's in the centre of Liverpool, it's still there today, and uh, the great Elisha would have his pint of Guinness, Dixie is bitter, and Dixie said they didn't even talk about the game. So it's lovely that they can actually escape talking about football, which, at which they both became legends. I'm surprised they could put the ball away, but they clearly did. Now, Dixie, of course, had uh, no little success against Liverpool, 
and until a certain Ian Rush came along, many, many years later, Dixie scored more goals in derby games than anybody else. Um, sometimes, of course, against the great Elisha. But clearly, whatever happened on the field was put away and these two greats joined each other in the Lisbon bar in the centre of Liverpool. I just wonder what the fellow patrons of the Lisbon bar must have thought when they saw them, because they were household names, household figures, and they would go in there and then they'd see these two legends of the game. But they're not talking about football and it must have been... I don't know, how did the fellow uh, drinkers suppress the temptation to go over and say, what about this match, what about that goal, what about this? I bet if they did, that it got short shrift off Dixie and Elisha, who clearly did want to put the ball away and keep it away. But there you are, that's what legends must do. The reason that uh, I left Everton was through... A chap named uh, Theo Kelly, who was in charge. He was secretary manager. Matter of fact, I didn't care what he was then, but uh, I knew what was happening. He wanted to get rid of me, and also one or two of the other people that looked like probably having the job there one day of managing all. And uh, it seemed that this fellow didn't uh, want me to be there long. He wanted to have that job there. Who definitely wanted to get rid of me, I could see that. And we had it out this time. I had it out with him. And uh, I decided to move on. The way Tommy was shaping there with, with Everton at the time, I'd uh, really come out of the first team then. Tom had taken over. And there's no getting away from the fact that lad, by that war, that kid would have had a lot of caps good, strong, a good header of a ball, use either foot, and as I say, there was no getting away from the fact that that kid was a great set of forward. From there, from Nuts, uh, I was asked by the Sligo Rovers team in Ireland, in the west of Ireland, if I could find them a centre forward. And uh, I tried quite a number of lads and asked them if they'd like to go over there but none would have it and then they wrote and asked me would I go over myself which I did and I had a very good time there I uh, put them really uh, up a bit in the league and we did at the finish we finished second and we also finished runners up in the Irish Cup it was great there was no getting away from that it was marvellous now when I was coming back uh, at the banquet in Dublin, uh, I came back on the night boat. And uh, in the meantime, the old chairman, Mr. Flattery, he'd uh, had this envelope ready. He handed me the envelope. And when I got on the boat coming across, I opened this envelope. I thought, what's this? He must have bought me a couple of ties or something. And when uh, I opened it, of course, there was the, the envelope, and there was 80 quid in it. And they were all in English pound notes. <laughs> Very sad, isn't it, to hear Dixie talk about how he left Everton, that uh, slightly bad feeling, and that's being, uh, being kind between him and Theo Kelly. 
Um, and it was sad that a player who is a is a legend and always will be left under those circumstances. But he was going to have to leave sometime, um, I suppose, although he wanted to stay on. He did, in fact, leave. He joined Notts County and um, then went on to Sligo Rovers. And his final club was uh, a team called Hurst, H-U-R-S-T, in the Cheshire League, which later became Ashton United. And that was Dixie's last club before war broke out, the Second World War began. And in fact, the strange thing was, at Hurst, he was paid more than at any club he'd ever been with because they weren't a football league club and they could pay what they wanted to pay, uh, which was a rather quirk. He's playing in the Cheshire League, better paid than he was anywhere else. But that was Dixie and his last professional appearance was for them uh, just before the... Uh, War began in September 1939. He talks there about Tommy Lawton, because Tommy Lawton was one of the great English centre-forwards. His career for England and for Everton, of course, uh, stymied by the Second World War, as indeed happened to many players. Some of their careers finished um, in the Second World War. But I asked a man called Gordon Watson no longer with us, but he was a man who was with Everton virtually all his life. He played for Everton and he played in teams with Dixie Dean and with Tommy Lawton. And he had a number of jobs with the club, um, culminating in um, a job in the 300 club, the social club, which was part of Goodison in the 1970s. And I asked Gordon, having played with both these great luminary centre-forwards, Dean and Lawton, how he would remember them, which he would choose, and he said, well, he said, and he thought for a minute, and he said, he said, Tommy would be 99.9% and Dixie would be 100%. So Dixie just wins the vote of Gordon Watson, and he played with both, so who am I to argue? Um, he was in Birkenhead General, he had a, about 25 pints of blood pumped into him or something like that. Because Gordon and I went to see him a few a few days after the operation, and we walked in tiptoe, red lights, you know, tread, tread softly, and we went into this room. Um, we walked in there, he had a little portable television, there was a, a pint of Johnny Walker, brown ale or whatever it is on the side of the bed and the, the words were like um, that song so Piggish just let me down for the treble <laughs> that, honestly that might be word for word but it's something like that we don't thought the poor fella's going to be 25 pints of blood you know tubes everywhere probably a little thing ticking alongside his body and uh, that song so Piggish just let me down for the treble Brian's words there and describing the scene in the hospital to me completely captured Dixie Dean because he was never one to boast about what he did or feel sorry for himself. He was always very humble. And when you praise Dixie, he, he, um, he didn't exactly bask in it. He, he would 
probably want to change the subject. So the thought of Brian LeBone with Gordon West, the great goalkeeper, of course, Brian played in front of for Everton, won the title with indeed in the 1960s. The thought of these two creeping into a hospital room, knowing that Dixie had had his leg amputated and really not wanting to make any noise whatsoever and going in there in the most reverent way and suddenly when they got in there what Dixie say <laughs> he said the blinking Lester Piggott let me down on the horses I mean it's just typical of Dixie that and of course he breaks the ice as well it puts both Brian and Gordon at their ease and that was Dixie he was matter-of-fact to to a fault and to have your leg amputated and to talk about Lester Piggott letting you down for a treble it's just Dixie all the way and he's that's the type of comment I'll always remember about Dixie he um, he let his actions do his talking and Everton of course was my life the best team I also was 1932 and 33, and that was the, the league and the cup. And you, you didn't have to uh, tell them to give you the ball, pass it all in. It was just a team. It was just like George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. What a haunting piece of music and really it led to one of the most poignant memories of my life and that was when I took Dixie to the game he died at which was just as you can imagine just uh, tragic in every way. What happened was that um, myself and a colleague, a great Southport photographer, award-winning Harry Ormisher and I used to write and produce the um, Everton, Liverpool and Manchester United annuals. And in March 1980, March the 1st in fact, was the derby match at Goodison so the publishers decided they would launch the Everton and Liverpool books on that day with a publisher's uh, lunch for the book trade at the old Holiday Inn in Liverpool city centre and they said to me would I invite the top table how's this for a quartet I invited Brian LeBone, Billy Little, Bill Shankly and Dixie Dean. This was after Dixie had had his leg amputated and his daughter Barbara brought him in his wheelchair to the hotel that day and left him in my care. And while we were having lunch, Bill Shankly stood up and brought the whole of the room to tears, including Dixie, when he said he belongs in the company of the supremely great like Beethoven, Rembrandt and Shakespeare. Nobody under the sun scores goals like him and never will. Straight from the harp from Bill to Dixie. 
And as we went up in the taxi to Goodison Park for the match, I'd arrange with Everton to have them both as my guests. Bill Shankly says to Dixie, William, when did you last see a derby game? He said, I'll tell you what, Bill, he said. The last derby game I saw a bloody played in the 1930s. So that made it even more profound and what was to follow, oh, so nostalgic and poignant. In the 70th minute, Peter Easto scored for Everton, and as he did so, Dixie Dean slumped forward in the director's box and died of a heart attack. The last thing he ever saw was Everton scoring a goal, and it was against Liverpool. His daughter Barbara told me later that day it was, of course, long before mobile phones, so we had to make contact later. She said, John, if my dad had wanted to choose somewhere to spend his last hours, it would have been exactly where he was. And Barbara said, you know, John, when I left him with you at the hotel, she said, I knew I'd never see my dad again. It was just a tragic, poignant day all round, but one I'll never, ever forget. It was that great man, Joe Mercer, who summed up what happened that day, when in tears, he said, that was Dixie, he said, always the man for the big occasion. He said, I think he stage managed this. He was a man, Dixie, who loved Everton. He said on our podcast, Everton was his life. And for him to go there at that age, minus a leg, and watch Everton play against their greatest rivals, a, a team Liverpool Dixie loved playing against. And for that to happen, I think is uh, somewhere in the heavens, whether Dixie had a part in it or not. Somewhere in the heavens, I do think that was stage managed for Dixie Dean to die at Goodison, the stage on which he became a legend and forever will remain a legend. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. Please tune in to more in our series of Merseyside Legends with me, John Keith, produced by Ollie Cowan.